0: Brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to Peter Singer, a philosopher and professor of bioethics at Princeton University, who first became well known after the publication of Animal Liberation in 1975, and has been a leading thinker and campaigner in the field of animal rights ever since. He has published a number of books, including The Life You Can Save, The Most Good You Can Do, and Ethics in the Real World, and Animal Liberation was included in Time Magazine's list of 100 best non-fiction books published since 1923. A revised version, Animal Liberation Now, has just been released, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to him today. Peter Singer, welcome to The Penguin Podcast. Thank
1: you. I'm delighted to be with you.
0: Peter, in an age before social media, can you explain the kind of pushback that you received in 1975 when Animal Liberation was first published and how vitriolic it was?
1: Yes, there was certainly a lot of pushback. It came obviously from the farming community, farming lobby. It also came from some people involved in experimentation on animals in labs. When I appeared on uh, talk shows and radio and television, there was a certain amount of ridicule of the idea that animals might have rights or that our concern for animals should extend beyond Cats and dogs, and perhaps horses. Uh, the idea of concern for chickens was something that seemed to some people uh, just uh, too too extreme to really take seriously.
0: How did it compare to the pushback that had happened hundreds of years before when women first decided to say that they should be treated equally?
1: I think there was a parallel there, really, uh, because that too, of course, was ridiculed. Some of the counter arguments. Uh were similar the idea, for example, that it's always been like this. It's always been that men ruled over women. It's always been that we used animals for our own purposes. Sometimes there was religious backing alleged for this that you know this was the way God had ordained it. There were quotes from the Bible, both in the case of women and in the case of animals. fact the famous Dominion verse in Genesis was cited to say that. God gave us dominion over the animals, and this was interpreted as meaning we can do as we like with them. So there were a lot of parallels with the aims of equality for women and uh, the aims of changing the way we think about animals.
0: Define speciesism, which I know probably is quite a wide definition, but
1: yes, you could, Peter. So I use the term speciesism to make the parallel with uh, sexism as you just suggested by your previous question and also of course with racism which is the other example of uh, one group dominating another and finding justifications for doing so again in its religious texts and uh, in the idea of a kind of natural superiority. So by speciesism I mean an attitude of uh, bias or prejudice against beings of a different species. The the idea that all members of our own species have rights and a moral status, which is unique to us, and that no member of any other species could have uh, a moral status that requires us to take their interests seriously. For example, to think that it's just as bad to inflict pain on any being capable of feeling pain, whatever the species of that being might be. That's an example of a speciesist attitude. In
0: 1975, was there much allyship between what you were saying and thoughts around climate change, which must have been in their infancy then?
1: Uh, Actually, there were no thoughts about climate change in my head at all in 1975. Ah. And I don't think there were in the public either. It really only became a public issue in the 1980s. I first was alerted to the possibility that we were changing the climate of the planet in 1984. And that happened only because I was a visiting professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and the National Center for Atmospheric Research in the United States was also in Boulder. So there was a a member of my department who'd been talking to the National Centre for Atmospheric Research, and they had alerted him to the problem of climate change. They were interested in, you know, asking a philosopher whether this was an ethical issue and what one might do about it. And I think for the the general public, it was probably even later into the 1980s before climate change really became a a publicly known issue.
0: So now, of course, the two things are inextricably linked. Living without speciesism, as you say in Chapter 4 while combating climate change?
1: Yes, absolutely. We now realise not only that we are changing the climate of our planet, but that the meat industry produces a very large amount of greenhouse gases, commonly estimated to be around 15% of all greenhouse gases. This is actually something that we could change quite rapidly, and without inventing new technologies or uh, rebuilding the power grid, we could dramatically reduce the greenhouse gases from the animals who we raise for meat. That's been an important reason for the rise in vegetarian and vegan eating over the last decade or two.
0: I want to bring some names into this conversation and to talk about their work, to give a sense to people listening to the Penguin podcast the kind of foundational issues around how we have treated animals. And those first two names is Dr. Stephen Suomi and Harry Harlow. Can you tell us about what they did to animals?
1: Yes. Uh, So there was a series of experiments begun by Harry Harlow into the effects of maternal deprivation of an infant being reared without a mother around, or eventually with a hostile mother. And he did these experiments on monkeys. He took infant monkeys from their mothers, and he deliberately tried to make them neurotic, not just by rearing them in isolation, but as the experiments went on. And these began in the 1950s and continued for decades. As they went on, he, for example, built artificial monster mothers. So uh, he put the infant monkey in in a cage with a cloth covered wire monkey shaped object. And the infant monkey instinctively clung to this cloth covered wire mother. And then he fixed up a mechanism so that suddenly sharp spikes would protrude from the wire monkey mother and push into the infant. This was supposed to simulate maternal rejection then he also had the idea of putting the baby monkey into a, a well-shaped stainless steel container at the bottom of the well, he said, because depression had sometimes been described as being sunk into a well of despair. So he did that to the infant monkey. Then he constructed what he called a, a tunnel of terror, uh, which was a, put the monkey in a tunnel where there was a scary monster at the end of it. He just kept doing more and more variations on this, not surprisingly really nothing really resulted from this the discoveries about the effects of maternal deprivation on human infants had already been made through observations of of orphans in institutions for example stephen Swami was one of uh, harlow's students and having been trained in doing this kind of work by harlow uh, after harlow's death he continued it with further variations less horrific, less sort of obviously cruel perhaps than Harlow's, but still involving deliberately depriving infant monkeys of the kind of comfort of a a mother. And that continued until 2016, I think it was, when finally, after campaigns by people for the ethical treatment of animals, the National Institutes of Health withdrew funding. I, I should say for, for all of these years, the sort of what, something like 60 years of experiments that yielded no results, US taxpayers were, were footing the bill all the way through. This was done on, on government research grants. What was a rape rack? One of the things that Harlow was looking at was whether a female monkey who had been treated in this way, deprived of her mother, could herself become a normal mother or not. But the first problem with this idea was that the deprived monkeys would not accept sexual advances from male monkeys. So in order to get them to conceive, Harlow constructed what he himself refers to in his publications as a rape rack. That is, he tied the female monkey down to a rack so that she could not resist the sexual advances of the male and effectively was raped, didn't have the opportunity to accept or reject those advances. Uh, The result of that was that he did get pregnancies in these deprived monkeys. And he then describes how they behaved as mothers uh, with quite sickening results. In in one case, he said the neurotic monkey mother, who he had deliberately made neurotic, took the baby and rubbed her face on the floor back and forth so he showed that with maternal deprivation you got monkey mothers who were did not behave as normal loving mothers to their infant monkeys so there was more suffering and again uh, i can't see that there were any positive or useful results for humans coming out of this
0: what were the ethical conversations these scientists, these researchers had amongst themselves? What was the ethical framework to the work they were doing, Peter?
1: Uh, I think that there were a number of different things going on here. One was that, uh, particularly uh, in the field of psychology in the 1950s and 60s, there was this idea of uh, behaviorism, that it was unscientific to attribute feelings or subjective states like fear or pain to non-human animals because we can't observe them directly, the argument was. So instead of saying, for example, that if you gave electric shocks to a dog, the dog would feel pain, what you said was the dog showed an aversive response. That means the dog tried to get away from the source of the electric shock. So I think that was one part maybe of what Made scientists do this. But obviously, it, it wasn't the whole story because if you really accepted that there was no mental states, then all of this experimentation would have been pointless because we know that there are mental states in humans. So there wouldn't have been a proper comparison. In a discussion that took place on a, a television program that I quote in the first edition of Animal Liberation, there's the question raised when the philosopher Robert Nozick asks questions about whether there are ethical implications in what is being done to animals. Uh, One of the scientists, quite a distinguished scientist, goes on to say, why are there any ethical questions? Why should there be any ethical issues about what we do to animals? So they're simply denying that ethics applies to the treatment of animals. And I suspect that this must have been a relatively common attitude among scientists in this period of animal
0: experimentation. What was the idea behind learned helplessness?
1: Learned helplessness was used as a uh, supposed model of depression in humans. It's been observed that humans with severe depression sometimes seem to be helpless in avoiding unpleasant situations. So uh, the first experiments in, in learned helplessness, which were done by scientists at Harvard but then were copied elsewhere, involved inescapable electric shock administered in some of the initial experiments to dogs. The dogs were put in an enclosure where the entire floor could be electrified, so there was no escaping the electric shock. Or in some experiments, they could at first jump into a separate section of the uh, enclosure where there was no electric shock, but then a barrier was elected. After they'd been trained to do that, uh, a barrier was put up so they could no longer jump into the other side and they would just try to jump out and bash themselves into the, into the barrier. The experiment was continued until the point where the dogs simply gave up trying to escape the electric shock. So instead of leaping around, the, the reports describe them as uh, you know, jumping up, as uh, urinating and defecating as they try to get away from the shock. But eventually, if you continue to give them inescapable electric shocks, they just passively lie on the floor of the cage and, in a sense, accept the shock, although they may still be whimpering because of the pain. So that was then the state of learned helplessness, and that was then supposed to model depression. Again, there were no cures from depression that emerged from this infliction of pain and suffering on a
0: a range of non-human animals. So to the best of your knowledge, these experiments had no benefit at all to the human species in terms of understanding depression.
1: I think that's correct, yes. It has, in fact, finally been abandoned as a model of depression. And even some of the experimenters who themselves were involved in it have published statements saying that this did not turn out to be a good model of depression. The sad thing is that although this is, as far as I know anyway, not used anymore as a model of depression, similar kinds of suffering are being inflicted on animals because some uh, scientists now believe it might be a model that could tell us something about post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, I report in the new version of the book in Animal Liberation Now, I report on scientists doing experiments on animals in which they try to create post-traumatic stress disorder, obviously by doing something very traumatic to the animals, and then seeing whether they get something that relates to post-traumatic stress disorder in humans. But again, there've been articles saying that, well, this is not a good model of PTSD because it depends on a range of factors, including maybe stresses that you suffered as a child and then that are rekindled as an adult by some traumatic experience, and there's all of the socialization and the use of language, so on, so. Again, I don't think that anything very useful for dealing with PTSD has emerged from these experiments, and it doesn't seem to me likely that it would.
0: For what purpose, Peter, would scientists in China want to try and make monkeys depressed?
1: Well, I suppose what they would say is the purpose is to produce an animal model of depression and then to test various drugs that might assist with depression. On those monkeys, and see if you know once you've created a state of depression in a monkey, which again they do by various forms of confinement by terrorizing the monkeys by pushing model snakes into their enclosures because monkeys have a natural fear of snakes, you know a whole range of other things that they do to them, and then they they say, "Okay, so the monkey then sits in the huddles in the corner of the cage and hangs his or her head." And they say, okay, so this is a sign of depression. We now have a depressed monkey. So then we might try some drugs on the monkey to see if the monkey emerges from this state of depression. Uh, I think that's how they would defend what they're doing. But again, as far as I'm aware, this hasn't led to any uh, cures or effective treatments for depression.
0: It can have quite the opposite effect as well. Just tell us about the story of Oriflex, which is an American drug, and I think it was sold in the UK as Oprim, I
1: think. Yes, I think that's right. Oriflex and, and Oprim are the same. So this is one of several examples of drugs which were tested on animals and proved safe on animals, or at least the test didn't show any problems. But then when they were released on the general public, there were a lot of problems and, and uh, quite a number of deaths, according to some estimates the number of deaths from oriflex or operin is I think something like 40,000 deaths may have occurred as a result of it. Um, The estimates are uh, contested, but certainly it it had many adverse effects. And this is just another example of the well-known fact that humans and non-human animals respond differently to a variety of drugs and treatments. And so we can test things on animals, but whether this translates to humans is certainly not always the case. I also quote one former director of the National Institutes of Health in the United States, the largest government body funding medical research, who said, we, we became very skilled at curing cancer in mice, but this didn't cure cancer in humans. So it's, it's, it's a well-known phenomenon that different species will react differently to different substances.
0: What are the estimates of how many animals are experimented on per year? And I say estimates because there are some animals, certainly in America, that are left out of the numbers, aren't they? That is correct, yes. The estimates for the United
1: States vary greatly, and the reason for that is that there are no official statistics kept for experiments on rats, mice, or birds. And rats and mice are by far the largest proportion of animals experimented on in the United States and indeed worldwide. According to one estimate done by a researcher, something over 99% of the animals used are rats and mice. Other estimates by lobbyists for the research industry say, no, it's not as high as that. It's only 95%. But whatever it is, it's, it's absurd that the legislation that allows the Department of Agriculture to collect statistics and to regulate research on animals specifically excludes rats, mice, and birds. And that is entirely the impact of the lobbyists for the research industry who got to the legislators before they could pass the law relating to government regulation of research. But to go back to your question, for that reason, we only have rough estimates of the number of experiments done on animals in the United States. It might be as many as 60, 70, 80 million animals a year. It might be less than that. And if we add in the numbers of animals used in experiments around the world, we're probably getting to something like 200 million animals used each year.
0: Can you describe the profound effect it had on the philosopher Steven Pinker when he was asked to do an experiment on mice.
1: I think it was actually a rat that um, Pinker was experimenting on. But uh, yes, so he was a graduate student working in psychology. Under the instructions of his professor, he was told to do something with a rat, which he thought involved in inflicting uh, electric shock on it, unless the rat did something, you know, pressed some lever, which would stop the electric shock. And he set it up and then went home for the day. And when he came back the next morning, the rat was dead. And he realized that the rat had never learned to turn off the electric shock as he expected. So as as he describes it in his own work in the book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, he had tortured a rat to death. And he says, he regards this as one of the worst things that he's ever done. He explains it by saying this is what psychology was like in the days when he was a graduate student. This was just the attitude to animals. You would do these things even just as part of the training of a graduate student, not to achieve anything of real significance. Steven Pinker thinks that things have changed dramatically in universities since then because they now have institutional animal care and use committees. And on the basis of that, when I started doing research for animal liberation now, I was hopeful that I would be able to present uh, a picture of a dramatically improved situation over that which I described in the first version. But regrettably, I found that things are, are not as good as Stephen Pinker had suggested, that there are still a lot of painful experiments inflicted on animals, perhaps not so many in universities now, but definitely in terms of testing of uh, new products on animals, uh, toxicity testing, which may be done by corporations, by commercial interests, rather than by scientific researchers, there is a lot of suffering inflicted. And also, as I said, there are still, looking at it in many different countries, there are still quite painful experiments being carried out on animals. And in at least a couple of cases that I described, researchers were actually participating in experiments being conducted in China. I'm talking about American researchers participating in experiments conducted in China that would not have got past those institutional committees in their own university, but they were still involved in them being done elsewhere and co-authors of the articles that then published the results.
0: What is conditioned ethical blindness?
1: The term conditioned ethical blindness was invented by a a man called Don Barnes, who for many years carried out experiments for the United States Air Force. The nature of the experiments he conducted went like this. You took monkeys and you trained them to do something a little bit like flying a plane. So you put them on a platform which could tilt and drop, move around like a plane might in turbulence. And you gave them a joystick that they could learn to keep it level and at first you simply rewarded them for keeping the platform level with the joystick but the real point of the experiment was to see what would happen if a pilot dropped a nuclear bomb and had to fly through the radioactive cloud released by the bomb so supposedly to see how long a pilot would be able to operate a plane in these circumstances barnes Radiated the monkeys, gave, subjected them to uh, to radiation, so that they would suffer from radiation sickness, and then saw to what extent they could keep the platform level. Um, and they were they were being punished with electric shock if they did not keep the platform level. So he did this for a while, and then he started to question the value of what he was doing. He said, you know, is this really going to be used by the Air Force in their training of pilots? Is this data from monkeys really going to suggest what pilots will be able to do in these circumstances? Which of course, fortunately, these circumstances have never occurred anyway, since this was long after Hiroshima and the US uh, has not dropped a nuclear weapon since then. But in any case, he questioned that the data was going to be any use. And uh, for this, he was reprimanded by his superior officer, but he changed his view about it and he resigned from the uh, Air Force and, uh, in fact, began to campaign against the use of animals in experiments like the ones he'd conducted. And in describing why he had done this, for because he had done experiments you know, on animals for, for years, he said he had been conditioned into it. And the conditioning, a part of his training, again, a psychologist by training, part of his training had conditioned him to think that we can use animals in any way we like, and their obvious suffering didn't matter.
0: And does conditioned ethical blindness, and the key word there is conditioned, does that still run through the scientific community? Or is it something they would deny exists? I believe it still runs through the community. And I have recent
1: evidence of that from two female graduate students in psychology, who I quote in the book, Francis Cheng, and Emily Trunnell, who were both trained as PhD students in biological sciences. They were trained to use animals. Uh, Again, I think it was was rats and mice they were using. And they believed initially, and were told by their professors, that these results would be important in uh, helping to overcome human diseases or discovering uh, health risks in humans. But eventually, they came to realize, firstly, that the results were not going to really be ones that could extrapolate to humans. In particular, one of the sets of experiments involved the way uh, a high-fat diet would affect heart conditions, but um, it was conducted on rodents, and it eventually got pointed out to the graduate student by an outsider when she submitted something for publication that uh, the way in which uh, rodents digest fats is completely different from the way that humans digest it and you therefore couldn't uh, move from one to the other. And in the other case, I think she just decided that it wasn't right to inflict this amount of, of pain and distress on animals. So they both left the scientific establishment as well and became opposed to the use of animals for research. And effectively, I think you could say that what they went through that enabled them to do this for a time was the same conditioned ethical blindness that Donald Barnes described in his own case.
0: How do you feel about the mainstreaming now of vegetarianism and veganism? And what do you put that down to?
1: I'm delighted by the fact that more people are going vegan or vegetarian or or even just cutting down the number of meat meals that they have i think it's useful if people say you know well i'm i'll eat meat two days a week Uh, that's better than eating it seven days a week clearly and it means that there's more of a market for vegan and vegetarian plant-based products and that's good too because it makes it easier for other people to make that shift so uh, i'm very pleased that this has happened uh, why did it happen over the last uh, 20 years, say, when it didn't happen before? I think you know one factor may be that people are more aware about of the impact of eating meat on climate change. So I think that's been a factor for quite a few people, in addition to the concerns about animal welfare. But another factor, I think, is the internet. So people who thought that they were unusual in thinking that we ought not to be treating animals the way we do, uh, who are opposed to factory farming and wanted to try not being complicit in the exploitation of animals. They might in some communities felt felt quite alone and found it hard to do this without support, but thanks to the internet, no matter where you are, you can be in a small rural community where you're the only one who thinks this way, but you can easily be in touch with uh, many, many others who also think the same way elsewhere in your country or elsewhere in the world.
0: There is, of course, the academic debunking of many of the reasons given to experiment on animals. But how over the years have you dealt with the, the anger, the sadness that comes with seeing how humans treat non-human animals? Uh,
1: I think I've dealt with the anger by working hard, to make more people aware of what we are doing to animals. I think when I found out about what we're doing to animals back in 1970 was my when I first learned about this, and I was already 24 years old then, I was somewhat shocked that I'd been complicit in this for a lot of adult years of my life. And I should have known better, but I didn't know about it, and I realized that many, many other people didn't know about it. So my anger at learning how we were treating animals and at my own complicity in it, I channeled into working on the first version of animal liberation so that more people would find out about it. That did involve a great deal of sadness as well, especially when I was doing the research. I I did a lot of research in the New York Public Library, looking at uh, accounts of experiments on animals and also looking at descriptions in the agricultural journals of uh, how to produce animal products, whether it was eggs or chicken or, or pork, how to produce them cheaply, how to essentially confine your animals and crowd them together and deal with some of the problems that that gave rise to in terms of their welfare, not by improving their welfare, but by accepting that some of them were going to die, but you would get Overall, a more profitable return on your investment than if you did less crowding. So, yeah, that was very depressing um, reading all of that in detail. I used to come home and uh, it would be hard to get to sleep at night. But I suppose I developed a thick skin eventually. I, I had to become less emotionally sensitive to it because I wanted to write the book. And I also didn't want the book to be a kind of emotional. I wanted it to be as cool as I could make it so that it would convince people who initially maybe didn't particularly care for animals, but were just interested in whether there was a moral issue and, and what that moral issue might be.
0: We're often told, Peter, that we live in incredibly polarized times where you pick a side and you stick to that side and you won't be persuaded because perhaps you think the other side is the other part of the culture war. How conscious are you of that? And is it any different to what it was in 1975 when Animal Liberation was published?
1: I think that animal welfare in itself is not a particularly partisan issue. It's it's partisan in the sense that there are clearly interests opposed to the point of view that I'm representing. Uh, the agribusiness lobby in particular, the experimenters and and the commercial forces that provide animals for experimentation, and that will uh, certainly oppose what I and others are saying. But politically, in terms of the left and right spectrum, there is bipartisan support for animal welfare, and that's been true both in uh, the United States and in the United Kingdom. There have been notable Conservative MPs in the UK Parliament. Uh, Richard Bodie was a pioneer in some animal welfare issues and uh, was was a Conservative Member of Parliament. There were notable Labour supporters as well. This is true to some extent in the United States. People see animal rights as a progressive leftist cause, but one of the Speech writers for George W. Bush, uh, Matthew Scully, wrote a strong book called Dominion, uh, arguing against the way we treat animals. And there are other conservatives who have done things for animals. Uh, even currently, Ron DeSantis, who's a governor of Florida and uh, a candidate for the Republican nomination and whose policies I strongly oppose on many issues, um, has actually done things for animal welfare as well. So in that sense, this is bipartisan and I think that's important if we're going to make progress.
0: So what of the argument humans come first?
1: Well, I think the argument humans come first, simply boldly stated like that, is just another example of speciesism. You know, it, it takes more argument to say why should humans come first? What is so different? And on that, my view is a view that was put forward about 200 years ago by Jeremy Bentham, uh, when he said uh, the question is not, can they reason nor can they talk, but can they suffer? And that seems to me right. The fact that we can reason and we can talk is obviously relevant in some ways, but if it comes to making animals suffer, it's the fact that they can suffer that is important. And the question then to ask is how bad is their suffering? Uh, would we do something similar to a human for this purpose? And if not, why are we prepared to do it to an animal if we would not be prepared to do it to a human? There is no justification for just automatically saying humans come first. It's, as I say, it's just another example of saying, well, our species is the only one that matters.
0: What about a different type of conditioned blindness? I mean, you write about being down on the factory farm. Do you think that we have a conditioned blindness to understanding where our food comes from, specifically our very cheap processed food comes from?
1: I think it's slightly different from the conditioned ethical blindness in animal experiments, because it's more that people don't really want to know where their food comes from. It's not that they've been conditioned into fully understanding the facts, as obviously Don Barnes knew exactly what he was doing to these monkeys, but he was conditioned into thinking that this was ethically acceptable or, or not a problem. In the case of factory farming, you know, I've had it happen so often that people have said to me, don't tell me about it, I don't want to know about it, it would spoil my dinner. And I think so, it's, it's if you like, it's, it's a willed ethical ignorance. It's a turning away from something that might make me uncomfortable and that people are just not willing to face.
0: Where do you derive hope from, Peter?
1: I derive hope whenever I am with people in the animal movement who are working hard and united to change things, who can see as I see, how wrong what we do to animals is, and who are really dedicated to being a voice for those who cannot voice for themselves what wrongs are being done to them. I had the experience of doing this just yesterday. I, I was in Brussels for a meeting of the Euro Group for Animal Welfare, which has been an important vehicle for improving the conditions of animals in the European Union. Uh, Not enough, of course, but certainly they have been responsible for some reforms. And so there was a large crowd of people who were enthusiastic about what they were doing, who were working for organizations across the European continent, and all confident that they can make progress, that they have widespread public support in their country, and that the future for animals is going to be better than the present.
0: Peter, we sometimes ask our authors to bring objects to talk about, but you've slightly changed that, and I very much approve of this. So there are kind of slightly different questions here. Firstly, something that changed you, and I know there are two things that you want to talk about when it comes to what changed you.
1: Yes, that's right. The first change, I suppose was that instead of becoming a lawyer, I ended up doing philosophy. And I think that the change there was from the boyfriend of my sister I had, had, she's unfortunately no longer alive, uh, a sister who was six years older than me. And she had a boyfriend who had studied some philosophy and uh, talked to me about it. And at that stage, there was no philosophy in high school, so I knew nothing about it. but. It sounded really interesting. So when I went up to university after high school, I had originally applied to study law, but I decided to do a combined degree in law and arts. And in the arts, I chose to study philosophy because that sounded interesting because of this complete accident, I suppose, that uh, my sister's boyfriend had had studied philosophy and, and talked to me about it. So that was the first change. And the second occurred much later when I was a graduate student at Oxford. Again, though, it was, it was really a complete accident that I got into a conversation after a class. Uh, the class was about freedom of the will. I got into a conversation with, with a Canadian student. Shall we continue the, con- the conversation over lunch because the class finished just before lunchtime? And he took me to his college at Oxford, to Balliol College for lunch. And there we were offered either a hot dish or a salad plate. The hot dish was spaghetti that had a a sauce on top of it. And uh, Richard, my companion, asked if the sauce had meat in it. And when he was told it did, he took the salad plate. So I took the spaghetti and we ate our lunches and continued the conversation about freedom of the will. And then I asked him why he had asked that question about meat, because in 1970, uh, it was really, I didn't know any vegetarians. You know, there were virtually no vegetarians. Maybe there were some Indians who uh, were vegetarians for cultural or religious reasons. But otherwise, you never met a a vegetarian. And uh, I didn't know what to expect. I suppose I suspected Richard was some kind of crank, because that's how we thought of vegetarians then. But he simply said that he didn't think it was right to treat animals the way they get treated to be turned into meat. And again, as I've already mentioned, I was quite ignorant about factory farming. It was already the standard way of raising chicken, producing eggs from laying hens, and uh, also pig products. And increasingly, cows were also being put in feedlots and fed grain. So Richard told me a little bit about this, and I then uh, he recommended a book that I could read. There was only one book that described factory farming, but I found it Uh, quite persuasive. That really started my whole journey in terms of seeing uh, treatment of animals as a major ethical issue and writing Animal Liberation.
0: Well, talking of food, something you like to eat, and the fact there is a recipe section at the back of this book, as there was in 1975,
1: That's right. Uh, So in 1975, when I published Animal Liberation and argued in it that people should be vegetarian, I didn't even argue then that people should be vegan. Uh, Very few people would have known what that word even meant. But uh, I put in the recipe section because there weren't many good vegetarian or vegan uh, cookbooks around then. And I thought a lot of those that were were fairly stodgy, at least the the English ones were, were not great. So... I decided to put in some of the recipes that uh, my wife and I were cooking after we'd become vegetarian. And that was quite popular, but by 1990, when I revised the book, the, the last proper revision before Animal Liberation Now, I dropped the recipe section because by then there were quite a lot of good vegetarian and vegan cookbooks at, so I thought it wasn't necessary. But several people told me that they were sorry that the recipes had gone, that they liked the idea of a philosophy book with uh, recipes in it. So I decided to bring it back for the animal liberation now, but I brought it back in a different way. I made it more personal. I put in a little bit about my cultural background and my wife's cultural background. We're, We're both children of immigrants from Europe, in my case from Austria, and in Renata's case, my wife's case from Poland so there weren't too many vegetarian or vegan dishes in those cuisines but um i used to enjoy pea soup a thick pea soup into which we put uh what in my family were called sippets and if you look up the dictionary that's a somewhat obsolete word now Um, essentially they're croutons but they have to be freshly made so you chop the bread into little cubes and you fry it in hot oil till it goes a little golden brown and maybe put a little bit of salt or something on it, and, and then you serve it hot in a bowl next to the pea soup. And it's vastly better than those sort of rather dry, tasteless croutons that you can buy in a packet. So I put in that recipe and my wife's borscht recipe, which is a you know a beetroot and, and cabbage soup. And as well, some of the other cuisines that we've tried that I like to cook, I, I enjoy making dal from uh, from red lentils, the Indian curry served with papadams and uh, maybe some lime pickle. I also describe some stir fries, um, a Sichuan, unusual potato dish, shredded potatoes uh, cooked in a Sichuan style. So yeah, it's, it's it's more personal now. It's more sort of favorite dishes rather than just a selection.
0: Tell me about a song that moves you, Peter.
1: Uh, there are quite a lot of songs that move me. Um the one that I particularly like and am moved by when I hear it is, is John Lennon's Imagine. Uh, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. It's obviously just the, the sound of the, the music. There are the lyrics, which are idealistic, uh, imagining a world without war and uh, all at peace. And of course, there's the tragic fate of John Lennon, which was just the opposite of Peaceful, which was a, a tragic and violent death. So... I'm moved by all of those things together.
0: Now, what do you do when you're not working? That was something else you wanted to tell us about.
1: Yes. So because my work involves a lot of reading nowadays, mostly uh, on a screen and a lot of writing, I'm sitting at a desk, I'm inside. When I have leisure time, when I'm not working, I want to be active and I want to be outdoors. And I particularly enjoy being in a natural environment. And for me as an Australian, that can be either hiking in in a forest, in a bush. I particularly enjoy being in mountains. I I love the sort of sense of space that you have when you're on a mountain top or a mountain ridge uh, looking at everything below you. Uh, But it also involves being in the the ocean um, because we're fortunate in having some beautiful ocean beaches and I've been swimming and uh, surfing in the ocean for a long time, uh, body surfing mostly. And later in life, I took up surfing on a board as well. So sometimes I'm sitting out there with a break uh, on my board, waiting for a wave. And that's a beautiful experience as well.
0: Extraordinary. The last subject here shows the romantic side of Peter Singer, the most important person in your life, Peter
1: well, the most important person in my life is undoubtedly my, my wife, Renata. We've been t- uh, married now for 54 years, and we were together for a year or two. Yes, I'm sure Renata would be
0: very happy <laughs> that you were specific. <laughs> December
1: 1968, we were married, so it's, uh, it's uh, 54 years and a, and a half at the moment, but we were together for a year or two before that. So uh, all of these formative experiences I've talked about, well, not exactly... The decision to study a combined arts and law degree rather than a law degree—that happened before I had met her. But certainly, the decision to become a vegetarian, as it as it first was, was one that we made jointly. You know, I was the one, as I described, who had this lunch with Richard Keshen and then started thinking about animals and read the book about factory farming and thought that really we should change the way we eat. But Would I have had the strength and courage to do it on my own? Or if Renata had said, no, I'm not going to do that. You'll have to be on your own. It would have been far, far more difficult. And I can't really be confident that I would have. So it's been wonderful to have her support in that. And in a lot of the other changes that we've been through in our lives, whether it's um, going to Oxford to study in the first place was something that we did together. Going back to Australia to have our children with their grandparents and cousins around them, which was also a wonderful experience. Um, Then going to Princeton in 1999, when that opportunity came up, a lot of different things that I've been through with Renata and all of the important decisions have been joint decisions that we've discussed together.
0: What would you say is the foundation of a marriage that lasts for 50 plus years, Peter? Because there are a lot of people that want to know the answer to that question.
1: <laughs> right. Okay. I, I think sharing the most fundamental values is really important. I think being concerned to to live our lives in, in ways that would make the world a better place um, and being ready to evolve and change and develop together is really important. And the other thing that I would add that is obvious, I think, is uh, you have to be ready to compromise If uh, you're going to be completely uncompromising and certain that you're right and your partner is wrong about something and uh, take a hard line, that's going to be very difficult. You need to be ready to make those adjustments and to have a, a lot of give and take in a relationship.
0: And lastly, Peter, what would be the actions that readers of animal liberation now would take that would give you the most sense of optimism and hope, the takeaways from reading this book?
1: There are two kinds of actions that I would hope that readers will take. Firstly, I hope they will find the argument convincing to the extent that it's not possible for them to continue to eat uh, products from abused animals. And and in particular, I'm thinking about factory farm products. I can understand people who find it difficult to give up meat completely. And if they want to be, uh, you know, search for products from animals who have had good lives and been killed painlessly, you know, I'm still going to accept that if they don't buy products from factory farms, they don't just buy the cheap products in the supermarket. That's an important step forward. And and that's where I think the argument that I put in Animal Liberation now is is really at its strongest. That if we buy those products, we are supporting the industries that are producing them. And those industries will continue as long as people support them by purchasing their products. So it's important to stop doing it yourself and to be an example for others and to help to build a critical mass of people who are going to say no to factory farming. And the second thing you can do in saying no to factory farming is to support those organizations that are already doing that. Wherever you might be, there are different organizations in different countries, but there are many organizations you can find online that are doing excellent work in opposing factory farming. Um, And they need more support. Obviously, they need the money to continue to operate, but they also need people to do things, to write letters, sometimes to turn out for protests, uh, and to be active. And uh, I hope that many of my readers uh, will become active campaigners for animals, uh, rather than remaining passive and uh, not raising their voices against what's happening.
0: Peter, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to spend time with you and I'm so glad you could join us on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Peter's work, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts, where you'll find compelling conversations with authors from Margaret Atwood to Benjamin Zephaniah. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'll see you next time.